from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why CDP introduced plastic reporting, where to go for sustainability strategy training, why SAP has embedded a green ledger into its apps, and Patagonia's board chair on the quest for imperfection. Eureka, we found it. Imperfection, that is, this week on 350. It's May 19th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is the never imperfect Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. <laughs> Hello, Joel. I am very <laughs> imperfect. I well. think everyone is. Every human is. Human is imperfection. <laughs> Maybe, but you're the perfect co-host for this oh, podcast, so let's leave it there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have a new addition to the editorial team this week. Uh, do you want to tell all here? Or at least yeah. some. Shout out to Allison Fass, the uh, new VP of Editorial Strategy and Products. And she came to us uh, from Fast Company and uh, former journalist for the New York Times and, and other publications. And yeah, we're really excited to have her uh, uh, helping to revise or revamp or rethink our editorial strategy is energize uh, energize that's the great uh, see i need everybody needs an editor <laughs> that's true <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah no yeah, yeah we have lots of fun um and exciting plans for the editorial team looking forward um investments and new new ways of approaching things yeah super super excited for this edition heather i have to ask you uh because you've been the editorial director, what happens to your role now that we have Allison? So that is still in progress. Um, but I, the, the one thing that we do know is that I'm going to do a whole lot more reporting and writing and um, shaping of content. So I'm going to be I'm going to be um, really becoming more of a journalist in the field, if you will. Well. That's what you do best. I mean, you do many things well, but being a journalist is right at the top of the list. So getting to commit more journalism, it's that's a that's a good thing. <laughs> we like committing journalism. Not to, not that editors aren't journalists. Editors are. Uh, but but the point being that I'm going to be doing a lot more writing, which I'm super excited about. Well, we're super excited to see your byline on greenbiz.com uh, with an increased frequency. And, and, and that's that's great. And Allison, uh, if you're listening to this week's podcast and of course you are uh welcome yeah and i probably spelled i probably mispronounced your name <laughs> wait hi my name no who's no name? no fast boss yeah oh yeah well that's always part of the uh the the new colleague uh, learning journey is yeah how do we say your name uh i know there's people in the company who are still afraid to say my last name so yeah that's uh, true that's true mine's easy but you know what i'm i'm the most excited about with allison she's a what? jersey girl like me Ooh. okay well the playing field is tilting a little bit to the right 
um, that's great. And I mean that geographically, not politically. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's exciting. I'm going to let's get out of this. OK, yeah, let's get out of this cycle here to where we need to be, which is the weekend review. OK, I'm going to pick us up with one of our latest contributions from Trish Kenlin, the founder of Sustainable Career Pathways. She's done some really terrific listicles, if you will, on certification and training programs that are um, all the rage for what we need to be doing with our our teams, um, both sustainability teams in general, but also companies that are trying to help their larger workforces get, get up to speed with strategy. And her latest piece is on just that, sustainability strategy training. Um, The setup here is that Trish sees a lot of companies moving uh, folks into roles, sustainability strategy roles that don't necessarily have a sustainability background, right? They have a lot of great knowledge, industry knowledge, um, a lot of business knowledge, and they, they're learning fundamentals of, um, you know, so where have we been with corporate sustainability? You know, things like, you know, how does the UN SDGs shape strategy and so forth. And so um, her latest list really focuses on ways of of brushing up on those skills. If, you know, if you've been moved into a sustainability role, but don't have that background necessarily, um, these are the the courses for you. Yeah. I love that she, when she does these pieces, she did, uh, uh, this is the third in, a, in her most recent series. The first one was climate literacy training for every budget. And then there was uh, 10 resources for scaling corporate climate literacy. And what I love about this piece is that, I don't know about you, Heather, but I get pinged not every day, but multiple times a week uh, from from people I know and people I don't know on, on LinkedIn and other platforms saying, how do I up my game? Uh, I've been in sustainability or I'm, uh, and how do I get beyond sort of the reporting accounting role into a more strategic role? What do I need to know? What do I need to, what kind of, are there certifications or courses and um, as this field of corporate sustainability has evolved and grown, and as everybody seems to be upping their game by necessity uh, in terms of the kinds of commitments uh, and, and, and engagement internally and through their supply chain and customers and all that, uh, we need more sophisticated sustainability professionals. And so... so um, Getting involved with strategy and sustainability is is really one place where uh, corporate sustainability professionals can and arguably need to go if they want to continue to uh, increase their value to the company. And so, yeah, lots and lots of good stuff here uh, from, you know, Climate Reality Project, Al Gore's thing to uh, UN uh, uh, Global Compact, uh, UN number of UN programs here, but also some uh, is a University of Colorado course that's yeah. available on Coursera. And, and, and it's just um, a lot of things here that uh, are, are worth checking out. Yeah. That was the one thing I was going to mention. And we'll, then we'll leave it at that. There's a lot of universities are starting to uh, invest in this, which is, is a good sign, I think, generally speaking, for the schools of business. Um, like, you know, as we incorporate this into things like MBA programs or business management at the undergraduate level, I think um, these will become more of a part of that, which is exciting. Well, speaking of integrating and, and upping your game, uh, Heather, you have a piece this week 
about the uh, big enterprise software company, SAP, and, and that they're embedding green ledger, in quotes, into their core apps. Uh, it just, it, uh, I don't understand completely what that is, uh, but it sounds important. <laughs> so uh, do tell. Do tell. Yeah, well, that's why it's in quotes. <laughs> that's what they're calling it. It's their product feature. Basically, this is the one I've been waiting for. Um, although there is still a holdout, I'll get to in a moment. Among the large enterprise software companies, SAP is the most aggressive um, on the and and the, you know consider the market leader in enterprise uh, resource management and planning. So all of the back office systems that you need to manage transactions through your supply chain and that you know all the way it's really what the the financial teams at these companies rely on when they re- prepare the reporting for. Um, for all the the you know the the regulatory stuff that that the companies need to comply with on the financial side. So flash forward to you know what I, a question I've been wondering about is okay when are they going to account for carbon? And that is what this is. Um, they are doing an all out push to get carbon accounting features um, just embedded into their core um, software products and 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 really just to make it another data point within those systems, which is just super important because it draws off the same transaction data uh, information rather than that um, the rest of the, the reporting does. And so it's it's really just an acknowledgement that this quote, green ledger, end quote, needs to be part of the financial systems, generally speaking. So that's part of the story. So they, they're doing a lot there. The other part of the story is they have... Um, a new offering called Green Token by SAP. They've been testing it with uh, with Unilever, actually, um, which has been using it to monitor su- uh, palm oil sourcing. Uh, and, and this is one of those tracking and traceability um, systems that we've been hearing so much about that companies are starting, a lot of pilots, right? Um, this particular product has now been in- adopted by Unilever um, on a broader basis. So lots going on here. SAP is a company with lots and lots of customers, um, which just makes it super interesting. Um, I, and I, I love this was like I had to put this in here. One of the, the comments that Jim Sullivan, who's the head of product management for SAP Sustainability, um, one of the things he said to me is, quote, it's not an exaggeration to say that 100 out of 100 customers wants to do something about around sustainability with us, end quote. So I was kind of mm. like, Wow. Yeah. yeah, well, well, indeed. Mm-hmm. But Heather, this seems like a fairly crowded space. Uh, Salesforce, of course, has has something, and then of course, companies like Persephone, and there's a whole bunch of them. And I don't pretend to understand the nuances and, and the differentiation. But why is this one in particular most exciting? Yeah, this one is big. As is Microsoft's, by the way. I I really those two are the ones I really feel like have the potential to most make most impact. They're just, they're part of the systems of record for so many companies that in order to get this, just this whole carbon accounting system down better, that why not have it integrated? So they're, they've got the customer base to really go out and claim a big a market share here. Um, that's what the, the, um, the market analyst I, I spoke with pointed to SAP, Microsoft, Salesforce, and IBM actually as, as companies that have um, the potential to really drive a lot of adoption and, and that that adoption is starting to, to, to happen. These systems are in place. So the, the advantage that these big companies have is they have the market share already. 
Um, they're not obviously purpose built, right? So they're not. They might not have the same niche focus that a, a you know one of the companies you mentioned with Persephone. There's a lot of companies out there, um, but they've got the customers. I personally think that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the sector. I think some of these big companies are going to buy some of those smaller companies. Um, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't started happening. The other thing I'm surprised about is I have I hear barely anything out of Oracle on this, which is another company which has a huge installed base um, of this sort of software. So for the big companies out there, um, this is super important. Smaller companies that are coming up um, and starting from the beginning, you know, as a startup, starting to, to track their greenhouse gas emissions, um, there's probably a whole, there probably is a really good opportunity for that for a company to really establish there. But the ones going after the big companies are going to have to, you know, come to terms with the competing with these companies, which actually does validate the market. But, you know, they could also be acquisition targets. Yeah. Wow. Really interesting. Memo to Safra Katz, the CEO of Oracle. Uh, I, yeah. What's I mean, I've, going on? They, yeah. they could be doing something. I have not heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's move over to a different aspect of accounting and reporting, which is the new the growing uh, mandate really on on plastic reporting. And we have a piece this week from senior editor Jesse Klein about CDP, the organization nonprofit uh, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, that uh, in April announced that it's going to be opening its disclosure system to plastic usage reporting. Um, and uh, companies can will be able to start reporting for this current 2023 calendar year. Um, this is part of a of a, a lot of activity that's that's taking place right now, including this month um, around um, plastic waste and disclosure and reporting. And and we've seen a couple of reports come out. One from WWF this week, and and another one uh, last week. And I'm actually writing a story about this for next week, so maybe we'll talk about it uh, next week, that- um, I hope so. Uh, there's, there's uh, first of all, a, the, the COP for plastic. It's, they're not COP, it's called INC. Um, and I'm forgetting what it stands for. Uh, but um, uh, that's happening at, in Paris at the end of, of this month, and it's um, looking for uh, um, uh, a, uh, basically a par- another Paris agreement um, INC is an intergovernmental negotiating committee, which mm. is different than the conference <laughs> of parties. And oh my God, UN, can you get your naming conventions together? Maybe we'll have a global treaty on naming conventions coming up. Uh, but uh, the, the, that's all trying to create a, a global treaty to uh, uh, with some frameworks on, on how nations are going to address the plastic waste, well, crisis, really, um, and um, uh, which is bad and 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 forecast to get much much worse so jesse wrote a piece about cdp's part of this um which uh you know how uh, their cdp is going to start collecting and disclosing to the public um plastic use and 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 other aspects of, of plastic production yeah and that's important because well, and this actually makes me shudder. <laughs> I have to say, How one so? of the one of the one of the things that um, that's necessary for is if we create dunk dunk dung, a plastics credit marketplace. Oh, yeah. Which, um, yeah, yeah, right. It's it's seen as the first step towards that. Um, I mean, I know there are companies out there selling plastic credits already, but to scale it, um, 
companies kind of need to disclose and then, oh, this is what we're, this is our exposure. Okay, now we're, you know, buying these. So it, it this kind of sets up, this sets the stage, if you will, for that to happen. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's just, oh boy. Um, I just hope, I just hope that the plastic credits market, um, if, if it develops as it develops, puts a lot more focus on quality right from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, plastic credits, plastic uh, offsets. I mean, boy, that makes my head hurt. Um, it makes and, my... And I, th- and I think it's the wrong direction too, because it's I just do about... Too. It, it's it's about tinkering with the current system, which is mm-hmm. clearly not working, mm-hmm. as opposed to rethinking the system and, and rethinking uh, how we think about plastics. Um, and, and I guess, you know, on the one hand, you know, what CDP is doing is, is important and, and perhaps foundational, but it's just disclosure. It just says we're polluting this much. It's, it's not actually saying that uh, what we're committing to as a company. Um, but I guess that, you know, transparency is the first step here is once the, that, that the company itself even knows, because I'm, I'm guessing a lot of companies don't really have a, a handle around how much plastics they're either producing or using or otherwise responsible for. Um, so knowledge can be power, but I guess the real power of this is, is, is what happens with all this information and what difference does it make? There are no shortage of books on leadership, but how's this for a title? The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. At less than 200 pages, including the various acknowledgements and endnotes, this is a relatively quick read, and I was personally inspired and intrigued by the straightforward approach to problem solving that it proposes. Joining me to chat about the book is one of the co-authors, Charles Kahn, the co-founder of venture firm monograph.bio, and board chair of Patagonia. Charles, thanks so much for dropping by to chat. I'm really happy to be here, Heather. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into discussing the thesis, I'd love to hear the backstory here. Uh, what inspired the book? Yeah, so um, my co-author, uh, Rob McLean and I have written a previous book called Bulletproof Problem Solving, which is really a tools book. What are the tools you use for taking apart difficult problems and prioritizing the pieces? Um, which uh, which came out in 2019. As we were going into the depth of the pandemic, Rob and I started talking about what are the topics in the first book that we didn't get to cover? And, you know, uncertainty and the impact of uncertainty and disruption was not a big feature of the first book. Um, it it was really not not based on um, stasis, of course, because you know co- companies and nonprofits always operate in a changing environment. But I think it, the pandemic and then all the other shocks that have um, followed it, including uh, conflict in Ukraine, um, economic dislocation coming out of the pandemic, and then. At the same time, you know, chat GPT and the continuing disruption from technology vectors, automation, artificial intelligence, programmable biology, really sort of got us thinking, let's write a book about the mindsets you use to approach problems, especially when things are changing quickly. Lots of us were trained how to do strategy using these relatively fixed frameworks, 
here's the structure of a thing. Here's the conduct of the agents in the structure. How do I develop a strategy for that? And I guess our view is all of those beautiful frameworks are really out the window in the world that we operate in today. And that's what we wanted to write about. I want you to define imperfectionist in the business sense. Yeah. So it's a funny sort of title for a book. And we went back and forth on whether uh, whether we should pick something more obvious. And Wiley would have liked us to pick, you know, um, a, a textbooky title. But we kept coming back to imperfectionist because we think it's very important that people... Many um, nonprofits and for-profits are sort, are sort of stuck or frozen now because they think, oh, we're going through this tumultuous piece um, of time and we're just wait till we get to the other side and we get equilibrium again. And our view is it's not coming. Um, we are, you know, if, if anything, that post-war period of stability from 1950 to 2020 is actually the anomaly. Um, uh, much faster change and much more disruption is, is uh, more normal. And that what we need to do is to get comfortable edging out into uncertainty and just getting started. And that's why we call it imperfectionism, not waiting for, you know, for all the ducks to be lined up and everything to be perfect, getting started. Another term, you know, that would be not exactly equivalent, but in the same spirit is experimentalist. Um, we love the idea of coming up with especially experiments that are relatively low cost and low consequence as a way of building your knowledge and understanding of the game being played and hopefully building your capabilities and assets so that you can play it well. So getting started actually gets you better equipped for the next step. I think it's worth asking you um, so that the audience understands your own experiences with imperfectionism. So can you give a little bit more um, about how you learned <laughs> about how to be an imperfectionist? You know, the, the original origins, Rob and I have worked together for a long time. Um, he was my boss many years ago when we both worked in McKinsey. Um, and we were looking at um, companies that were developing strategies that looked that looked from the outside like they were literally bootstrapped. So they didn't fit the normal frameworks that people used. And I can think about, say, how Johnson & Johnson entered the contact lens market and became one of the dominant players. Um, later on, we noticed that Amazon had built over a very short period of time a very strong position in uh, the consumer finance business, even though they didn't do anything obvious and a lot of the steps that they used actually failed. And yet, sort of from 2007 to 2018, they now have built a 24% uh, uh, share of payments across the United States in the payment space, again, by relatively small steps that looked, I mean, really puny. And with their balance sheet, or J&J's balance sheet, you could have just bought a giant, you know, either finance company or medical services company, and neither one of them did. And it was a, those original observations that made us start thinking, look at, look at this approach, which is experimenting, stepping out, leaning in, if you like, um, making moves that where you don't expect them, many of them to work, buying a bit of IP, hiring a team from a failed uh, competitor, making a small investment, um, starting a little skunk works on the side rather than the big chunky moves that people tend to attribute to, especially big companies or big nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy. 
And the more we looked at it, the more examples we saw of folks that were using, that weren't waiting for um, some equilibrium for them to get started. And who, on, on the other hand, weren't doing giant uh, uh, leap before you look acquisitions either. That's where it came from. So you have, um, you outlined six different mindsets that contribute to imperfectionism. You kind of alluded to one a moment ago, but can you describe these mindsets briefly? Yeah. So let me, let me describe the constituent ones and then I'll describe the over, overarching one, which we also call a separate one. But um, all of this starts with curiosity. I mean, and that sounds just an amazingly obvious and silly, but it's a, it, when you're in a big um, NGO or you're in a big company, being curious actually is not the first thing that um, the way people approach the world. They usually have game boards that they think they understand and playbooks that they tend to execute. And asking why something occurs is um, usually viewed as kind of a sign of weakness. And we love curiosity. And the first thing we do when, uh, you know, whenever, whenever Rob and I are in the problem solving business, whenever someone comes to us with a problem, you know, instantly you think you think you see three different angles and we always stop and say, no, what open our minds to much bigger space. And that starts with curiosity. Our favorite example here is of Edwin Land, who was the, the, the man behind Polaroid, who was walking around <clears throat> Santa Fe with his daughter in the 40s. And he took a picture with his camera and his daughter, who's and Jennifer said, can I see the picture, daddy? And he said, well, no, no. Uh, you know, the way it works is you have to take out this roll and go to a drugstore and the drugstore mails it away and it gets to, and he stopped himself and he said, what? That's a great question. Why can't we just take a picture? And with his scientific brain, by the time the afternoon was out, he'd already thought of a way to do instant photography. Curiosity is the is the is the, is the mother of all um, creativity and innovation. <clears throat> the second <clears throat> mindset we like um, we call dragonfly eye, um, which is sort of a fancy term we borrowed from Philip Tetlock, um, who wrote the Super Forecasters book. But it really just means seeing things through multiple lenses. So before you go off and just see things through the lens of your big you know, NGO, let's say, you know, Conservation International or your or your big company, you actually start you start by examining it from all the angles around the ecosystem. So what would it feel if you're if we were looking at an, at an NGO, what would it feel like to be a donor? What would it feel like to be one of the grantees? What would it feel like to be one of the indigenous people who lived in the reserve that you were trying to create? And to and to see things from these multiple uh, mindsets and to widen and narrow the aperture so that you were really working with all the cards in the deck rather than just your locked in perspective. Um, you know, an example we use in the book I love, which is the two young students at Stanford Business School who dreamed up Invisalign, which is, you know, the sort of clear braces that people use nowadays. Nowadays seems obvious, right? Actually, people had used these nasty metal braces almost since the time of the Egyptians. And it took two people who had nothing to do with dentistry, um, one of whom was wearing retainers uh, and noticed that it hurt it hurt their teeth when they put the retainer back in for th after three days. 
and realized, actually, maybe there's a better way to straighten teeth. That was thinking about it through a completely different lens from, you know, all the power of orthodontia and and, uh, and dentists, right? I mean, I, I love that idea. The third mindset that we think is important is this orientation toward experimentalism. And, you know, we, in the book, we call it occurrent behavior, which is you know, what actually ha- going to happen, not what all your modeling says is going to happen. And when you're a consultant, you're trained to go find the data sets that exist already because it's cheaper. And what you figure out pretty quickly in the real world is all those other data sets, everyone has them too. And it's a much more powerful thing if you can actually if you can actually collect your own data, if you can do your own experiments. Internet companies are famous for doing A-B testing or A-B-C testing, where they test three different versions. But almost every company or nonprofit can do small experiments. This is one of the ways you get a bunch of information about what game is being played without spending a lot of money and without putting everything at risk. Um, so we we love that idea. Many people think, okay, well, some things, it's easy to do an experiment like trying two different websites, but what about if, if you can find a natural experiment? Like which approach to the pandemic is the right one? The one Sweden took or the one Norway took? Everyone in both con- con- countries speaks almost the same language and has the same uh, historical uh, culture and values. But Norway did one thing and Sweden did the other. That's a natural experiment and we can learn from that, right? So we love experiments. Um, the third thing is to, we call it um, getting getting access to collective wisdom um, or collective intelligence, which again, sounds super obvious, but it's amazing how big companies and big NGOs don't do it, um, which is they assume that all the experts are in, the, are in their room already. And of course, as Bill Joy famous for Joy's law, law taught us, the one of the founders of Sun Computing, is that those people are seldom in your room. They're usually working somewhere else. The whole idea behind open source software is how can we gather incredible insights and ideas from outside our organization? Um, nowadays, we also have platforms like Kaggle, which use competitions to crowdsource great ideas. Um, and we just love that idea. So your, your boundaries... Your your inf- your organization's boundaries can be made open and more porous to invite in more ideas, especially when the world's changing quickly, but only if you're willing to tap into others' wisdom. The uh, second to last we call show and tell, which is kind of funny, but we think of that thing you do when you're in um, kindergarten, which is, you know, when you, when you want to convince other people that you've got insight into a strategic path or direction, you can do a PowerPoint presentation, which is terrible. And, you know, it has to exist, but it's so painful. Or you can tell a story using um, props or pictures or video. And we want to encourage um, everyone who is an imperfectionist to adopt this much more theatrical approach to telling their stories to convince other people. We love... um, you know, what Florence Nightingale did when she was trying to reform public health by coming up with a single graphic that described how public health contributed to a lowering of mortality during the Crimean War in the 1840s. We love, um, you know, the the many, many examples where people are speaking not only to people's intellects, but to people's hearts and their values. And if you can do that, you can get people behind you 
to, to make change, even when things are changing quickly. And then that last mindset is the one we call imperfectionism. And that's that inclination to use the other five mindsets, but then to step out into the risk to actually take, to take a chance. Thinking about it like a staircase of small steps, understanding and appreciating that some of those are going to fail and not punishing the people who've, who've done experimentation that fails and literally bootstrapping us toward good answers that don't come from static frameworks or old ways of thinking. And that that's the sort of um, the umbrella idea behind all of this. Now, I love that the examples you give, I'm just wondering if you have any um, in your in your head that kind of relate to corporate climate action or climate tech. There, there are a couple that I really like in this space. If we consider climate and species to be kind of one problem, um, at Patagonia, we do. You know, the, the environmental crisis is a combination of climate crisis and habitat destruction that leads to species eradication. So we often think of those as sister problems. One example we loved is um, the Nature Conservancy, um, which is one of the biggest of the environmental groups. Rob serves on the Asia Pacific uh, board of uh, advisory board of um, Nature Conservancy, and I serve with the European board. So we know the organization pretty well. They were trying to figure out how could we use onboard cameras in fishing boats in the open sea to protect endangered fish stocks. And it's a bunch of environmentalists. They didn't have the technology skills internally in the Nature Conservancy. And then someone got this great idea. Could we do a cackle competition where we offered up a prize, $150,000 in, in this case, for organizations all around the world to use this camera feed, video camera feed, using, um, using essentially camera vision and pattern recognition so that the people working on the fishing boat could be alerted if the shape uh, and other characteristics of an endangered tuna fish came over onto the, onto the, the uh, deck of the ship so that fish could be released. And they didn't have those capabilities internally. It turns out it's an incredibly difficult problem because you're on a rocking boat and it's often in low light and there's water and spray everywhere. But these wonderful teams of brilliant scientists none of whom work for the Nature Conservancy, came up with oh, 1,500 different entries. And finally, one of those won the prize, and it's now being implemented in the Nature Conservancy. So that's just one of those, you know, accessing collective intelligence, reaching outside their organization that solved a really difficult problem in a fast-changing environment. I love that. I'll give you one other, which is... Um, the Nature Conservancy in Australia was trying to convince people to build oyster and other shellfish reefs to help fight climate change, which often has a big impact on estuaries. You know, estuaries where freshwater meets um, saltwater, all kinds of creatures live and breed, you know, uh, wild Pacific salmon um, amongst them. And they were trying to convince uh, the donors at a big bank um, that this made sense. And instead of showing a bunch of PowerPoint slides, they put 17 green 10 liter buckets up on a credenza at the end of the room. And everyone came in and the first thing they noticed was this beautiful pyramid of buckets and said, 
what are the buckets for? Which led to, instead of a stilted presentation, a wonderful conversation about how each oyster in an oyster reef contributes 170 liters a day of um, filtering of the water that's coming uh, into the estuary. And so every single creature in an oyster reef does this incredible heavy lifting. And that story was just much better told by using this physical prop. So that one is that one's part of this show and tell piece. In Patagonia, where I spend a lot of time, we use this experimentalist framework all the time. Um, and one of the places we use it the most is measuring our own impacts um, on the planet. Um, as you know, in Patagonia, we're very careful not to use the term sustainability lightly because we think that our business is not sustainable yet. We, we use the term responsible. But um, we use this set of lenses all the time as we think about what are better and better ways um, that we can measure the impact on carbon, water, and all the other characteristics um, uh, that can be damaged by the manufacture of clothing. Got it. I have three more really focused questions for you. Um, sure. So in the chapter about being ever curious, you talk about the concept of killer questions, like the one that Edwin Land's daughter asked him. What advice would you give to help corporate climate activists ask more killer questions? Yeah, I would say um, two, two things, I guess. One is to get out. I mean, we're trained in science um, and we often spout science. And we often don't think about what it, what it means to the people we're, whose opinions we're trying to change. Um, and I, I come from this world where, you know, sort of call it beacon theory, where you, you know, all you need to do is show great um, science and everyone will recognize that they need to change their ways. It isn't so. It isn't so. You actually have to speak to people's values and what matters to them. And I would encourage client activists trying to come up with those really incisive questions to go right to the rationale of the organization that they're trying to change and think about how what they want um, uh, and what change they want has a direct impact on the value that that organization is trying to maximize. And when I worked in Wild Pacific Salmon at the Gordon Betty Moore Foundation, we called it like, What's the what's the question that causes, you know, soccer moms everywhere to pull their Subarus over to the side of the road and listen, right? And that is hu often human health, right? And so if you tell people that um, farming salmon's bad for the environment, they go, what? I didn't hear you. And if you said it's bad for their kids, that's when they stop and hear you. And, and it doesn't matter how you hook people, right? What matters is you get them hooked so that they're actually paying attention. That's what killer questions do. So when it comes to corporate climate action, so the corporations that, that are doing real meaningful work, which companies are the most notable imperfectionists? So you've mentioned Patagonia a few times, of course, because you're the chair there. Um, we all, we, we often hold them up. People, a lot of, you know, I actually, I mean, I have to say a lot of other companies say, oh, well, they can do that. We can't. Yeah. I would love to hear some other examples of companies that are notable imperfectionists or tending that way. Yeah. Well, there are lots, I mean, as you know, um, and there are many small companies that are doing the right thing and are building great followership as a result. But let me give you two examples, because I think they're both interesting 
of much bigger companies that have you know shareholders um, and uh, and are publicly traded, like Unilever or like Danone, um, big French you know water company, which actually have made very bold choices. Um, Unilever's been around for more than a hundred years. They make soap. I mean, you know, and many other products, many of which damage the environment. And yet they're one of, they have the potential to damage the environment, but they've been one of the uh, companies in the real vanguard of making change in a way that actually has a much bigger splash than a tiny company doing the same thing. Danone maybe is a more um, cautionary example, right? Because they were one of the first big benefit corporations and ultimately their CEO was sacked because activist investors didn't want them to do as much as they were doing on the environmental front. But those are two companies that I think have made a real difference. Um, I'll also just take on the the question, the, the, the implication that Patagonia sort of was easy and, and it isn't. <laughs> no, I didn't say it was easy. I think, I think people think that you're, it's an extraordinary company and they can't possibly emulate the same things. But I, but you know, why, you know, Yvonne is, is now 50 years running Patagonia, right? He's, he, if you meet him, he's a guy, he's just another, you know, he, it's, he's not God. He's someone who woke up every day, you know, started by making pitons because they were expensive, realized at some point in time that pitons actually hurt the rock and there were better ways to do protection when you're climbing. And that led to this environmental awakening in him um, earlier than for most people. But as he as he sought to make great gear, he also sought to do the least harm and eventually change the mission to save to, the, the companies in business to save the whole planet. We're just a company. We make stuff. It, it, anybody can do, every, any company can do what we're doing if they have courage and conviction. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing um, special about Patagonia except this incredible commitment from the family that owned Patagonia until last year to doing the right thing. We can all do the right thing. All of us can wake up every day and we get to make the choice. Do we cut a corner either on the quality of the gear that we're making or whatever it is we're making, or do we cut a corner on the damage to the environment? And if you decide you're not gonna do that, you've just taken a step forward. We love this idea that we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And in Patagonia, um, I, I mentioned this to you uh, uh, earlier, but you know, every time we think we've got the perfect way of measuring our environmental footprint, Three or four years later, we figure out that wasn't the perfect way at all. And now we've got a better way, but we never stop. You know, what Yvonne says whenever you do something good is good, not good enough. We can do better. And if that's your attitude, you give people praise whenever we make progress, but you keep us aiming toward doing better. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. All of us can do that. Yeah, so that's my final question. How can a leader better cultivate that culture of imperfectionism that, that gets you asking the questions and, and pushing forward incrementally, um, not letting you know perfect be the enemy of the good? Let me, I, I've been long-winded at times here, but let, let me be brief, which is, I think it's two things. You set incredibly audacious goals. Um, and I think Yvonne Chouinard's, um, Goal setting has been very audacious for us. 
but then you also have to empower all of your folks. And I, you know, the term empower is one of these suspect terms, but you have to push a lot of decision-making to the people who are making, who are interacting closest to the problems, not have strategy be something that's done by the top four or five people in a company, but have strategy done by everybody. So um, you don't punish people when they make small experiments, whether they succeed or not. But when something's gonna put the organization at risk, is gonna cost a lot of money or has some other consequence, you make sure that floats up high enough that there's a real robust discussion about it. Otherwise you let people experiment. And all the people in our product groups are constantly experimenting. All the people in our retail groups are constantly thinking, I wonder how we can do this better. You know, when someone sewed a label inside a pair of shorts that said, um, vote the assholes out, I assure you that didn't have permission from the board of directors. <laughs> and I'll also assure you that that person was praised, not punished. Love it. Thank you, Charles, for your time. Really appreciate it. It's my it. pleasure. You can edit the last bit out if you like. Um... <laughs> I don't need to. <laughs> You just heard from Charles Kahn, the board chair of Patagonia and the co-author of a new book, The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. And that's our 350 podcast for another week. Uh, as always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we've talked about this week. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got a bunch of them, seven or eight of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you can sign up. We love to hear from you, your questions, your comments, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>